0: As we continue in our Psalms series, let's uh, turn this morning to Psalm 99, and uh, before we stand to read that, I just, uh, just want to make mention three, three books that I have found uh, helpful over the years, and then particularly helpful as I've uh, worked through this passage and, and tried to think about it. Uh, one is, uh, two of them are by Jerry Bridges. One is The Joy of Fearing God. Uh, Wallace and Ruth gave me this for my birthday a few years ago. It's a great book. Uh, Another one by Jerry Bridges, The Pursuit of Holiness, you should all get this and read it, and then R.C. Sproul, The Holiness of God, uh, a great classic that's been around for a long time, but a a wonderful book. These have been particularly helpful for me as I've worked through Psalm 99, so I just commend them to you as helpful resources as well. Uh, If you're able, would you stand with me as we read from God's Word from Psalm 99? Psalm 99. Pay careful attention. This is God's word. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He is enthroned above the cherubim. Let the earth shake. The Lord is great in Zion, He and he is exalted above all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The strength of the king loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness In Jacob, exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Moses and Aaron were among his priests, and Samuel was among those who called on his name. They called upon the Lord, and he answered them. He spoke to them in the pillar of cloud. They kept his testimonies in the statute that he gave them. O Lord our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, and yet an avenger of their evil deeds." Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy hill, for holy is the Lord our God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Please be seated and let's ask the Lord uh, to help us. Lord, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. Would you sanctify us in the truth? Open our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things in your word. Help us to receive it with faith and love, to lay it up in our hearts and to practice it in our lives. And may we see Jesus, for we ask it in his name. Amen. Uh, our, our culture is enamored with celebrity, with popularity, with power, with influence. There's even a whole category now of employment called influencer. I'm sure you, most of you know this. Uh, that you can be famous simply for being famous. You can be um, you can earn a living simply by having a platform of your own making. We are obsessed and enamored with celebrity uh, in our culture. People clamor to to meet someone famous. There's kind of a sense of mystery, a sense of awe over someone who has fame. They're not like us. They are special. And yet, rarely does an encounter with a celebrity, with someone famous, change us in a radical, transformative way. Rarely does an encounter with someone famous or a celebrity cause us to deeply reevaluate our lives. Uh, Usually, it just ends up being a good story. You know, maybe something you can brag about uh, to your friends, but ultimately doesn't really mean much. I met Christian Slater at the Hard Rock Cafe in London. Most of you probably don't even know who that is, but he was famous at one point, and now he's not. But I was enamored with him, and he was sitting at a table close to where we were eating. I was in sixth grade, and I walked over to him, and I got his autograph. And my life has never been the same since then, but not because I met Christian Slater. (laughs) Maybe you've got different experiences. How many degrees of separation is there between you? Are there between you and Kevin Bacon? I've got three. OK, some of that makes sense to some of you. <laughs> My point is, we, we are enamored with people who are famous, who seem to have power and influence, uh, and yet encountering them often means very little. But to meet and to encounter the living God is altogether different. No one walks away from encountering the living God unchanged. Now, there's different directions in which that change can lead, but nobody meets the living God and walks away unchanged. Meeting him causes us to reevaluate our lives, to see ourselves differently, to look at ourselves in the light of who. He is as our creator and as the one who offers to us life and life abundant salvation through Jesus Christ. There is a story in the Bible about the prophet Isaiah as Isaiah recounts his own encounter with the living God and his own call to serve as a prophet. Isaiah tells us that in the year that King Uzziah died, He was in the temple, and he saw the Lord, the true king, enthroned high and lifted up, and his glory filled the temple. And when Isaiah saw the Lord, he saw these winged creatures on either side of him singing, crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. And as Isaiah saw and encountered the holy God, he immediately reevaluated his own life. A righteous man among his people, he saw the holy God and he saw himself and he called upon himself a curse. He said, woe am I, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the Lord." Isaiah was changed from having met and seen the Lord. He saw his holiness, the Lord's holiness. He saw his own sinfulness and his need for atonement. And it pressed upon him these questions. Who is this God? What is he like? And how should I respond? And Psalm 99 answers, offers us answers to those fundamentally important questions. Who is this God? What is he like and how should we respond to him? And it gives us several answers. This God is a holy God who is enthroned over all that he has made and, he, and we should respond in worship. This holy God is just. He has perfect integrity and we can trust his faithfulness. And this holy God is also gracious and loving And we should be moved to repentance and joy in his forgiveness. Let's look first at God's holiness and how it should move us to worship. The psalm is kind of divided into three parts, uh, each of them separated by this phrase, holy is he, holy is he, and then it ends, holy is the Lord our God. And in verses one through three, we see the emphasis is on God's transcendent holiness, that he is high and lifted up, that he is above us in his holiness. Listen to the language. The Lord reigns. He's king over all. Let the peoples tremble. He is enthroned above the cherubim. Let the earth shake. It's a picture of the Lord enthroned in the temple and yet not confined to the temple above the cherubim. And the response of the whole earth is to shake in his presence. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted above all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The emphasis in these verses is on God's what we call God's transcendence, that that he is above everything. He's he's exalted. He's lifted up. His height, his, his highness indicates his great status, his power, his might. He reigns as the sovereign king. Even as his people perhaps would have been reading and singing this in Babylon, taken out of their own nation where the Lord had reigned in the temple, and here they were in Babylon, hundreds of miles away from where the temple was, where the Lord had promised to reign among his people. The Lord still reigned as king, still sovereign, still ruling over them. Notice again the emphasis on his greatness. His name is great and awesome. He is exalted above all the peoples. It's, it creates for us kind of a, a picture that the Lord is high. He's, he's lifted up. Uh, uh, it made me think about at the Olympics, if, if many of you all watched the Summer Olympics when they had the medal ceremonies, where does the gold medal winner go? He's on the highest platform, or she's on the highest platform above the bronze and the, the silver medalist. Their height indicates their status the Lord is above all. He is transcendent. This is often what holiness in the Bible indicates. When when we think about holiness, the holiness of God, we often think about His moral, ethical purity, that He's good. He's, He's perfect. There's no darkness in Him. He has no desire and even no ability to do anything wrong. He cannot sin. He cannot lie. He cannot break his promise. He cannot be faithless. He is always faithful and trustworthy. He has perfect integrity. He is morally pure. And we often think about God's holiness uh, in those terms. And that's surely right. But it's not the only thing that God's holiness indicates. His holiness also indicates his separateness from us. He has no beginning or end. You and I all began at a certain point. Uh, he exists without any cause. Uh, he is self-existent, but we, we had a cause. Uh, something had to happen for for you and I to for you and me to exist at all. But God exists by His own power, without beginning, without end. He is in need of nothing outside of Himself to exist or to determine what's good, what's right, what's wise, what's just. He is the ultimate and only standard for all of those things because he is holy. He is transcendent. He is, as Psalm 113 says, highly exalted above all the universe, above all that he has made. He is separate from us in that regard. Jerry Bridges calls this aspect of God's holiness his transcendent majesty, that he is glorious, he is beautiful, he is majestic above all things, and that our response to him, therefore, should be worship. Let them praise your great and awesome name. He is exalted, therefore we should exalt him. We should also say that when we talk about God's holiness, um, This is God has many attributes, many characteristics. He's holy. He is love. He is loving. He is faithful. He is just. He is wise. He is good. He is powerful. He is everywhere present. He knows all things. He has many attributes, and they all, they all go together. Uh, theologians call this divine simplicity. God has no parts. He's not composed of parts. He's not like a 3D jigsaw puzzle, and you can take one part out and another and then put it all back together. He is He is one. There's no parts in God. And part of what that means is that when we think about God's holiness and any other attribute, they all go together. His love is a holy love. His love is a just love. His justice is a loving love justice. It's a holy justice. His faithfulness is a holy and loving faithfulness. They all go together. We might distinguish them, but in God they are all one. Yet, holiness seems to be singled out in the Bible in a unique way that other attributes are not. It's the only characteristic of God that is emphasized in a unique way where it's repeated three times. So, in Isaiah's vision of the Lord, he's the Lord who is not just holy, not just holy, holy, he is holy, holy, holy. And In the book of Revelation, the Lord is holy, holy, holy. Nowhere does it ever say that the Lord is faithful, 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 or loving, 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 or truth, truth, truth. Those are all true, but they're never emphasized in the way that holiness is. There's something unique about God's holiness that captures who he is. He is separate from us in his being and in his moral purity. And even here in Psalm 99, I don't know if you caught that, holiness is repeated three times. Holy is he, holy is he, holy is the Lord our God. And we should respond to him in worship, in adoration. But not only does his holiness call us to worship, but his holiness calls us to trust in his faithfulness notice verses 4 and 5 and and a little bit of 6 and 7 and how these emphasize the lord's trustworthiness that he has integrity that he can be trusted because he is just and righteous the strength of the lord the strength of the king rather loves justice you have established equity you have executed justice and righteousness in jacob exalt the lord our god and worship at his footstool holy is he. Here God's holiness is highlighted in his justice, his righteousness, and his establishment of equity or uprightness. But notice, he doesn't just establish justice, he loves it. Verse 4, the strength of the king loves justice. He is both mighty and just. He's powerful and he can only do what is right. Oftentimes, those things don't, don't go together. Sometimes people have power, and, and they're corrupt. They're wicked, and they use their power for selfish ends, to exploit others, to take from others for themselves, or simply to get away with whatever they want to do. And, and that power is corrupting because it's not coupled with a love for what is good, what is right, and what is just. But in Jesus, the king... Power and a love for what is just and right are joined together perfectly in harmony. There's integrity in the character of God. The strength of the king loves justice. He always does what is right. He cannot do what is wrong. The Lord will never be unjust. He is unable to be unjust. It, it, it cannot happen because his character is pure. We often say that God can do all things, and that's true generally speaking, but we should remember that God's ability to do things is qualified by his character. God can't lie. He can't be unfaithful. He can't die. He can't go back on his word. He is perfectly just and good in all that he does. All of this, as well as directed towards his people. Notice, he has executed justice and righteousness in Jacob, a way of talking about his beloved people. His name is great. He is great in Zion. His church, his power, his justice, his righteousness is all for the benefit of his beloved people. And therefore, we can trust him. To highlight this, the psalmist points to some old examples, Moses and Aaron and Samuel, as if he's pointing back to the history of God's people and saying, God is faithful, God is just, he can't change, he can't do what's wrong, he always does what's right. Here's how he acted in the past toward his people. They called upon him and he answered them. He spoke to them in the pillar of cloud. They obeyed. They responded with obedience. And then speaking to those who likely would have been singing this, perhaps in exile in Babylon, it was a reminder to them, even though they'd been sent out of Jerusalem and Jerusalem had been destroyed, the temple devastated, and they were grappling with what that meant in terms of how they should trust God's promises. Here, the promise to them is, look, God was faithful in the past. He does not change. He will be faithful to you now. Just as Moses and Aaron and Samuel called upon him, you can do the same, and he will answer you. He has spoken to you in his word. He does not change. Perhaps we struggle today with the same types of questions, maybe not facing the devastation of the destruction of Jerusalem or other things, but facing our own struggles, our own trials, things that pull up in us questions and doubts and wondering, what is God doing? Can I trust him? Will he be good? Will this be worth it? It's a reminder to us not only to look back to Scripture and see God's faithfulness, but even to look back in your own lives and see the way the Lord has faithfully, lovingly answered you as you call upon him and as you hear him speak to you in his word, as he responds to you and answers your prayers. Recently I read... uh, thing from uh, Mindy Bells who writes for World Magazine and covers kind of international events and, and the church across the, the world, and, and she's in touch with people in Afghanistan and, and was speaking with someone who uh, helps with the organization of house churches in Afghanistan and was communicating with some of the Christians there, and, and they said they knew what was coming Now that the government had fallen and the Taliban had come back into power, uh, they knew the danger they were facing by continuing to trust and claim the name of Jesus. And they said they were ready because they trust the faithfulness of God. Antony Burgess was a uh, Puritan pastor in the 1660s, and he wrote a book about preaching Christ as the foundation for uh, the lives of believers. And in that book, he said that he wanted to preach in such a way that his congregation would be prepared to face any challenge confidently, no matter what it was, to face any challenge confidently on the foundation of Christ. He viewed his one of his primary tasks as a pastor of Establishing and providing for his people a solid rock foundation on Jesus and the gospel, so that whatever waves came their way, however hard the rain fell and beat against their house, underneath them would be the rock of Jesus Christ. I find that very convicting. Have we done that? Are we standing firmly upon such a foundation with confidence not in ourselves but in the Lord's faithfulness so that whatever comes our way, whether personal trial or persecution and everything in between, are we standing on the rock of Jesus Christ in such a way that we can say, The Lord who is holy and faithful will not fail me. He is my refuge, He is my comfort, He is my confidence. God's holiness means that he never fails. You can trust him. He is faithful. While his greatness, as Jerry Bridges says, should cause us to stand in awe and trust him to be faithful and lay us prostrate in the dust before him, it should move us also to examine our lives, our sin before a holy God. We see this hinted at in the last few verses of uh, the psalm. As the psalmist recounts the way the Lord answered Moses and Samuel uh, and Aaron as representative of all of God's people, in verse 8 it says, O Lord our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them. And maybe we just want to stop right there. Yes, God is a forgiving God, but the psalmist does not stop. He won't let us stop. You were a forgiving God to them, and yet an avenger of their evil deeds. These two aspects of God's holiness and love have to stay together, that he must avenge evil righteously and justly, He is holy. He cannot look upon sin with approval. He can't ignore it, act like it didn't happen, just sweep it under the cosmic rug. He has to address sin because he is holy, because he is God. And yet in his love, he chooses to address it in a way that offers to us forgiveness so that we may know that he is a forgiving God. God's holiness should move us to worship, it should move us to trust and confidence in his faithfulness, but it also creates this incredible problem and tension for us, just like Isaiah seeing the Lord in his holiness, we also ought to see our sin in the light of God's unblemished, uncreated, glorious holiness. He bids us to come, but our sin keeps us and hinders us from coming. You see the tension. You feel it in your own heart. He is holy. I must worship him. I must come to him, and yet I have sin. How is it that these two things are reconciled, that God can be both forgiving and an avenger of their evil deeds? Well, sometimes it simply means what it says, that he forgave them, but also they dealt with the consequences of their sin. Sometimes it means... People were not forgiven because they rebelled in their hearts against the living God, and he avenged their evil deeds in that way. But the tension is resolved in this wonderful, glorious fact that not only is God holy, but he is loving, and his love and holiness are not at odds with each other. God himself must make the way for us to come to him so that in his holiness we are also received with love and forgiveness. And the way that he does this is through Jesus. Jesus became for us what we could not do for ourselves. And the very thing that God requires of us, he has provided in Jesus. He requires perfection. Be holy as God is holy. Don't ever think Anything remotely wrong, selfishly motivated, mixed or impure motives. Don't even think about doing anything remotely wrong and certainly don't act on it. Have you ever said anything that you felt like you you wished you could just roll your tongue back into your mouth and those words had never come out, but before you can think it, they're already out? We are all sinners before a holy God and each of us in great need of his grace. Jesus came and obeyed God perfectly, knew no sin. He never sinned. He never gave in to temptation, as the children have learned. He was perfectly pure and spotless in all of his ways, an unblemished lamb for you, for me, for us, the righteous one for us. And yet the righteous one became sin in our place, and he took upon himself our very sin at the cross. You know, God God would never, he could not ever punish an innocent person. you know that? He punishes the wicked, but he will not punish an innocent person. How is it that Jesus then is punished at the cross? Because he became, as Paul tells us, he became sin for us. Father looked upon the Son and saw and placed upon him even our sin. And the fullness of God's justice was poured out upon Jesus. Holy anger and wrath and just punishment on the beloved Son, Righteous and pure in all his ways, but becoming sin for us at the cross so that we could come to a holy God and be accepted because our sins have been taken away and because the righteousness of Jesus is offered to us in the gospel. So that when we come, he looks upon you and he sees Jesus in all of his righteousness and all of his sin bearing sacrifice and he accepts you fully with holy love. Jerry Bridges says that God's holiness is like a centrifugal force that pushes us away from him because we cannot approach him in our own sin. And his love, his holy love is like a centripetal force that draws us into him, into his very heart. Seeing God's moral purity causes us to evaluate our own lives and our need. And seeing Jesus, the Savior, the great King who reigns, draws us to the very heart of God that we can know him and love him and be welcomed into relationship with him and forgiven of all our sins and adopted into his family as beloved children. This is grace that the Father provides what he requires of us by giving us Jesus. Have you encountered the living God in this way, seen his holiness, responded in worship, seen his perfect integrity and faithfulness and responded with trust, looked at your own sin in light of his holiness and responded with repentance and even perhaps the beginning of Psalm 100, joy? Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. The disciples were told, had this type of experience with Jesus. In the midst of the storm, Jesus asleep in the front of the boat, the disciples fearful because of the great storm that had come upon the Sea of Galilee, shaking him out of his slumber. Don't you care that we're perishing? And Jesus, I can just picture, he just calmly gets up. Of course, he cares. But he was worn out, calmly gets up, looks at the wind and the waves, speaks to them, rebukes them, tells them to stop, and they stop. The disciples, at first fearful of the storm, now look at one another and have a different kind of fear, uh, a holy fear of God as they look at Jesus and ask themselves this question, what manner of man is this, that he commands the wind and the waves and they obey his voice? and the answer we find in psalm 99 he is the triune god a father the father the son and the holy spirit a god to be worshiped because he is holy a god to be trusted because he is faithful in his holiness and a god whose holiness should move us to repentance and joy in holy love and grace justice has been satisfied he is a forgiving god to us Your evil deeds have been forgiven because they've been avenged on the son at the cross. And in his resurrection, he has proclaimed victory and welcomes you to come now and encounter the holy God. Have you drawn near to him and seen his loving heart in Christ? Let's pray.